invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Um, we are in the we're in a sermon series about the Ten Commandments, and uh, it occurs to me that if you're just kind of dropping in partway into this series, um, that could be problematic. And and the reason I think it's problematic is because we're going to be talking about like Christian morality, how Christians are supposed to live, um, what the best kind of life looks like, um, and motivation is a big part of this. So why do we try to live according to God's will? Why do we even study the Ten Commandments? What's the point of Christian morality? Um, and it can be easy to think that we're doing these things um, so that God will save us, that God will love us, so that God will accept us. But for Christians, actually, it's, it's kind of the opposite of that. So because God has saved us, because God loves us, simply because of our faith in Him, uh, because He accepts us, because He saves us just for that reason, then out of response, we want to live grateful lives to Him. And so you almost might say that the Ten Commandments are almost like a guide for grateful living. Okay. And if you don't really know what I'm talking about, I preached about it two weeks ago, and that sermon is on the internet. So go and listen to it, and you can get like kind of a fuller explanation. But I really do think that motivation matters in this place. Because if, if you're thinking that you're going to do these things to please God or to, to win Him over or to, um, to save yourself, then these laws are going to crush you. Like, you will not live up, and you will be devastated by it. Um, but if it is a response of gratitude, I think that these commandments can actually bring life. Okay? So how you approach it really does matter. So, okay, Exodus chapter 20. It's on page 79. We're going to start with verse 1. And the first thing that we're going to read is the prologue. And the, the prologue, these are like the first words before the commandment. These are probably some of the most famous and the most significant like, verse in the Bible up to this point. It's kind of recapping in one sentence like all that God has done in almost half the Bible so far. Okay, So Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. He's reminding us who He is and what He's done. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now we get the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. Now the second commandment. This is what we're going to talk about today. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything, in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the Father to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make for yourself an idol. That's the second commandment. And some of you are probably thinking right away, Easiest commandment ever, right? Um, you know, I've, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of you about a lot of sins that you struggle with. Not once, at least not yet. 
Has anyone come up to me and said, you know, Pastor, I just, you know, I swore I wasn't going to do it again, but there was this Asherah pole at the party last night, and I just, just, I fell down and worshipped. Pastor, you know, I, I can't help it. You know, I'm walking through the woods, and I, and I see this beautiful hunk of wood, and I just think, oh, that would make an awesome deity. And I just, I take it home, and I load it in the back of the truck, and I start carving it. I just, oh, I can't stop. At least it seems for this congregation, this is not a lot of your besetting sin. This isn't like what you wrestle with or struggle with. Um, but before I pivot and tell you how idolatry is really something other than you know statues and things like that, I should say that if you do have like idols or statues of gods or things like that, or if you've got like lucky charms that you say little prayers to or things like that, um, stop. Uh, this commandment is talking about that and says that it's very bad. Um, I had a friend who preached a sermon about idolatry and was explaining how it has to do with money and success and family and all these sorts of things. Um, and then afterwards, uh, this woman came up to him and she said, you know, I've gone on a couple of dates with this, uh, with this Hindu guy and he's really great. He's got all these like idols and things and like statues in his house. Like, Do you think that's okay? Like, no, okay, so that's, it is talking about that. So even though that may not be like the most pressing concern in our congregation, I, I should say, that is included in the second commandment. Okay, now I'm ready to pivot. Are you ready for me? Okay, so how does this apply to the rest of us is, I guess, the question, who, who don't feel especially tempted to like make idols in our free time. Um, well, one of the ways that a lot of people talk about this is they, they talk about it in the language actually that, uh, well, Paul uses it in the New Testament, but then uh, John Calvin, who was a, a theologian about 500 years ago, he kind of, he had this good phrase to kind of capture it. And he said, he said that the human heart is like a factory for making idols. And what he meant by that is we humans, like we've got, just got it in us that we take things that are otherwise perfectly good and normal, like family or our jobs or something else like that. Um, we take something that's perfectly good and normal um, and we just like, we let it consume us. We let it define our identity way beyond the scope of how much it should, I, it should define our identity. Um, and, and this, I think this is a big deal. I think it's something I, I've noticed that I struggle with in my life. I'm sure it's something that you struggle with in your life. Um, you know, I, I was reading this week about um, somebody who was talking about this kind of idolatry, and, and they said, you know, way back in the day, people literally sacrificed their children. They'd go to temples and they'd, they'd kill their children to some deity. Um, and we think that that sounds so primitive and, and uh, so old-fashioned. And then, and then he pointed out how, you know, a lot of people in the way that they, in the, in the way that they pursue their career, or maybe if, if they have some addiction, the way that they pursue their drug or the way that they pursue their drink, um, they may not be taking their child to a temple and killing them, but they are in fact sacrificing their children by the way that they have just allowed their career or this addiction to just take over their life. Okay, So I think this is a real thing. I think it's, it's uh, something that's worth a whole sermon series, um, but... Actually, I don't think it's what the second commandment is most concerned with. So, um, uh, to get at what I think the second commandment is talking about, I want to tell you two stories 
about idolatry in the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, so the, the first one is probably the most famous. It's Exodus chapter 32. Uh, and you can turn to that. It's on page 92. So this is, you notice the 32 isn't that long after 20, so this is pretty close after the Ten Commandments have been given. Um, and Moses, he's the leader of the people, he's up on Mount Sinai. And he's getting like, the, the commandments are getting written out on stone by God. He's getting these other commands. So he's up on the mountain. And the people are down below and they start getting antsy. They're getting anxious because it's like been a while. And like Moses has been on the mountain, it seems like forever. And they're like, what happened to this guy? Like, what's going on? And so they ask, they ask Aaron, who's like, he's in charge now while Moses is on the mountain. They ask him to make like an idol of a god for them. Um, and so Aaron, he, he says, okay, well, give me all your gold jewelry. He takes all their gold and, and he like breaks it down and he makes it into this uh, golden calf. Okay. But I want you to look at verse 4. Okay, so he's, he's just shaped this golden calf. And then this is what they say. They say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, does your Bible, is there a note on the bottom of the page? It's like a little letter C and then a number four. What does it say there? Does it say, this is your God? Does anybody have that at the bottom of there? This is your God. Well, is it, these are your gods, or is it, this is your God? Um, and the translation issue here is that the Hebrew word that they're translating is the word Elohim. And Elohim is kind of a mysterious word in that it can refer to just a singular God or it can refer to many gods, okay? So the word can kind of do double duty. So um, in Hebrew, this passage, this verse 4 would say, This is your Elohim, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Okay, we're going to fast forward. 1 Kings chapter 12. This is a little later in the Bible. Uh, There have been three kings in Israel. There's been Saul and David, and Solomon. And uh, Solomon is kind of a mixed bag. Like, he did some good stuff, but also like a lot of bad stuff, especially toward the end of his life. Um, and so at the end of his life, he's, we read about him worshiping all these other gods. He's got like hundreds of wives. I mean, it's just this disaster. He's a moral disaster. Um, and then one of the things that he's doing, and the most relevant for our purposes today, is he, he basically forces the whole nation to work for him as slaves. It's a real bad situation. And, uh, and so the people, they're getting fed up with this, and they're like, we're not going to take it anymore. And so a group of them break off. Okay, so you remember there were 12 tribes in Israel. Well, 10 of them break off. And the 10 who break off, they go with this guy Jeroboam. Uh, and then the two who remain, they stick with Solomon's son, Rehoboam. But here's the important thing. Even though Jeroboam has ten of the tribes, he doesn't have Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is like the capital. It's also where uh, the temple is. That's where they would go to worship. And, and he doesn't want his people to have to go to Rehoboam's space to worship. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't want them to go into enemy territory to worship. And so he sets up uh, two like, places of worship among the ten tribes, in Dan and Bethel. He sets up these two places. And in these two places, he puts a golden calf. Okay. And now this is what 
1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28 says, Jeroboam says, Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Guess what? It's the same word. Okay? So what he's really saying is, Here is your Elohim, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Okay, now let's rewind. Exodus chapter 20. I was telling you about the, this prologue, like the most famous, one of the most famous verses in the Bible so far. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your... You want to guess what the word is? I am the Lord your Elohim who brought you up out of Egypt. Is this sounding familiar? Okay. It's the exact same line. Elohim who brought you up out of Egypt. Three times. Alright, so what does this mean? I think what this means, I think what it's telling us is that in these most famous stories of idol worship in the Old Testament, the people are not trying to worship some random made-up God. They're not trying to worship Baal. They're not trying to worship Asherah. That is not what the calf represents. Aaron and Jeroboam are very clear about who they are trying to worship. They say it explicitly. They literally quote Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. They are trying to worship Elohim, the God who brought them out of Egypt. In fact, in Exodus chapter 32, right after Aaron makes the calf, he says, hey, let's have a party tomorrow to Yahweh, which is the, the covenant name for God. It's even more explicit about who he intends to be worshiping. And what is so interesting to me about this is that they are not worshiping the wrong God. They are worshiping the God who introduced himself in the Ten Commandments. They are worshiping the God who brought them out of Egypt. They're worshiping Elohim. They're worshiping Yahweh. And yet, these two stories come up again and again and again in the Bible. The prophets bring it up a bunch. It comes up in the New Testament. These two stories stand as warnings to future generations. These are considered the lowest points in the history of Israel. So what's the problem? It's not that they're worshiping the wrong God. It's that they're worshiping the right God. They're just doing it in the wrong way. And I think that that is the big difference between the first and the second commandments. I think the first commandment is about worshiping the wrong God, which is very bad. But I think that the second commandment is about worshiping the right God, but doing it in the wrong way. Okay, so this got me thinking. Why did they worship God in that way? Why the idols? Anybody ever wondered that? This has just been a mystery to me. How that enhances worship. And what's... What's good about that? Um, and then I was thinking about our worship services. And so we got this thing that I, I, do, it, I do it every week, basically. Um, I did it again this morning. Um, I talk about how we've been praying this week. You know, that when we come into this place, we'll have this encounter with the living God. 
And then I tell you that the good news for us this morning is that the living God is here. To which someone could reasonably ask, where exactly? I mean, is he, is, he on, is he on the chairs? I mean, is that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit chairs? Like, he's just really small back there. Like, we're all kind of pointing to the front. Like, maybe he's behind the cross up there. I don't know. Maybe Pastor Sean put him in the prayer closet, right? What do you mean he's here? I mean, so much of the Christian faith has to do with this comfort that God is with us, that he's here. But where? We desperately want to experience God, but we say that He is present to us in His Spirit. We can't see Him. And so there's this doubt that can sneak up, right? And, and now imagine that you're an Israelite, okay? You imagine you're an Israelite. You're about to sacrifice an animal for your sins. That's what it means to worship. You bring in like a really expensive animal to kill it for God. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, God had better be here. I mean, I hope he's not like out to lunch right now while I'm making this sacrifice because this kind of cost me like three months wages or something like that. Like I, I really want him to be here, but you don't know because God is spirit. This was not a problem for Israel's neighbors because they had idols. And, and with an idol, it's pretty clear. Either it's there or it's not there. See, I think that what an idol gives you is a tighter feedback loop. Okay? And, and a tighter feedback loop is something that I think we all want in worship. Um, so we come to church every Sunday. We have all these expectations. Okay? So we have an idea um, of how we want things to go while we're here. Um, we want to be inspired. Maybe we want to be challenged. Uh, we want to feel uplifted. Uh, we want to feel like this deep spiritual fulfillment. And then, some Sundays, it doesn't happen. Uh, so we wanted to be inspired, and really we weren't. Uh, we wanted to feel uplifted, and we didn't really feel much of anything. And it can feel like worship is not working. Like there's no feedback loop. And so when we don't get the experience of God that we're looking for, or the, the feeling that we want, we think there must be something wrong with our faith, or maybe there's something wrong with our worship. Maybe we need to be singing different songs, or we need to be changing the things that we do in worship. Maybe we need more practical sermons. And often, often either we start trying to change our church, or we start looking for another church so that I can get the experience of God that I want. Sometimes that's okay. Churches should change in, in some sense. Um, and sometimes it is right to be looking for another church. But sometimes I fear that the most important question for too many people in worship, is this. Did I get anything out of church today? 
Did I get anything out of church today? Now, again, in a sense, that could be an important question. Worship should impact you. It should affect you. You should get something out of it. But I was thinking about that question, and it occurred to me that I wouldn't be surprised at all if people were asking that question right before Aaron and Jeroboam decided to put up the golden calf. Aaron, we're just not getting the experience of God that we want. Jeroboam, I'm just not feeling it like I used to. I heard an interview on the radio a couple weeks ago. Um, Tom Jelton, I think he's the NPR religion correspondent. He was interviewing a, a Roman Catholic teacher, and they were talking about the Pope's latest teaching on uh, love and sex. And the reporter was asking, you know, how are Catholics responding? Uh, like, how do Catholics respond to the church's teaching on love and sex? And this is what the teacher said in response to the question. He said, a lot of people in the church are asking, is this teaching of the church, is it something that I want to be a part of? Is this something that resonates with my understanding of what I believe Jesus Christ taught? Does this resonate with my understanding of what I believe this church is about? Where do I fit in? I was thinking about that answer. And how in three sentences he used the words my and I six times. I'm not picking on Catholics. I, I think this guy could just as easily have been from our church. Could have been me. But notice what he doesn't say Christians are asking about the Pope's teaching. They're not asking, is this what the Bible says? Is this what the church has taught for 2,000 years? Is this true? He says they're asking, how do I feel about it? Do I feel like I like it? Do I feel like I don't like it? Is this something that resonates with my understanding of what I believe Jesus taught? What does that even mean? While you're trying to resonate with your understanding of what you believe Jesus said, you could just read what he said. They wrote it down. But the idea behind that interview is that Christians aren't especially concerned with what God might think. They're not concerned with approaching things on God's terms. They want God on their terms. They want a God that resonates with them. And if the God of the Bible doesn't resonate with them, there must be something wrong with the God of the Bible. You see how this could be a problem? We assume that if we're not getting the religious experience that we want, if we're not feeling inspired in the way that we want to feel inspired, there's something wrong with God. Makes me think about Catherine, who we prayed for earlier. Um, I've spent a lot of time with her now in the last month, especially this last week. And she's dying. And this all happened pretty quickly. I mean, I think she was here maybe just a month ago. Um, but now it seems like 
pretty much everything that can go wrong with your body when you get very old is going wrong with her body. Um, and uh, she's been uncomfortable. She's been in a lot of pain. She's exhausted. And I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that she's not really feeling it right now. Um, I don't think she's especially inspired or fulfilled. I would guess that this suffering does not resonate with her understanding of how she'd like God to work. I can imagine she'd like to believe in a God who always keeps us from suffering and never lets us struggle and keeps us from pain and unpleasantness. But it occurs to me that when you are on your deathbed and any breath you take could be your last, Whether some belief about God resonates with you or whether you're feeling it are questions that matter a lot less than the question, is it true? See, the problem with tweaking our faith and adjusting it to make it resonate with how we feel is that the faith that we end up with is a creation of our imaginations. Which may be very creative and interesting to talk about. But is the God you invented really the God you're going to trust your last breath with? I've been talking with Catherine about God, and uh, it's not flashy or dramatic, uh, but there's this image that came up a couple times. You know, Catherine is so tired at this point um, that a couple of times when I've been talking with her, when we've been praying together, uh, she just like stops mid-sentence. Like her prayer just kind of stops. She kind of falls asleep. Um, And it made me think of this uh, verse in the Bible. Which, by the way, if you really want a faith that you haven't just invented out of whole cloth, reading the Bible is a good good place to start. Um, But it's in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. And Paul tells the, the Christians there, he tells them that Jesus Christ, the one who died for us, is always interceding for us to the Father. In other words, sometimes we pray to Jesus, but all the time, Jesus prays for us. And so, when Catherine is too weak to even finish a sentence in her prayer, we don't really have to worry about it. Because Jesus is just going to keep right on praying for Catherine. And it struck me that that this, this is not especially dramatic I can think of a lot of other ways that I'd like God to work in this situation. Ways that I'd like her to just heal Catherine, take away her pain completely. This is not a last-minute miracle. It's not some grand vision. It's just a verse in the Bible. But the God revealed in that verse is a God I very much resonate with. 
It's a God that I will trust my last breath with. It's a God who may not be just exactly how I want him to be, but it is a God who is all that I need him to be. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, sometimes we can become frustrated with the way that you work. And uh, we think if we just tweak a little bit here or a little bit there, um, we can come up with a better version of you than you. Um, Sometimes we think we know a lot better about how to design a faith than you do. Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you in life and in death. That you would reveal yourself to us as you truly are. And that you would break down every idol, every way that we distort you or manipulate you, and don't just worship you as you are. Hear our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.